Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Many of our episodes discuss and reference indirectly the Fort King Road. Seminole Wars Foundation even had a virtual march related to walking on the Fort King Road. In this episode, at two centuries remove, what do we know about the Fort King Road? What do we know about troop movements along the Fort King Road? And what does the archaeology tell us about how much of the Fort King Road still exists? Archaeologist Sean Norman will describe what he and the survey team from the Gulf Archaeological Research Institute, or GARI, from Crystal River, Florida, reported and concluded about the site and what purported to happen there. Sean Norman, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Sean, we've discussed conflict archaeology. The Fort King Road is not a conflict, although it was a platform for troops to use to get to the conflict. Still, can you call it conflict archaeology when you examine the remains of the Fort King Road? Conflict archaeology tends to focus on battlefields, right? Battlefields and forts. But there's a lot more to conflict archaeology than just battlefields and the actual defensive structures. One interesting thing, the American Battlefield Protection Program, where we do a lot of our grants through, has gone further to acknowledge supporting features. Military historians traditionally study battles, not roads, unless the road had some key part to play in the war. Where does the Fort King Road rest on this continuum? Part of the road itself is a battle. But there's more to it than that. War consists of more than just the outright engagement. You've got tons of both civilian and military support staff going into all this. You have logistics. There's just a lot more that goes into it. How you control chain of command, how you process orders, how you move people around the landscape. Roads are key aspects of that. And they're understudied because archaeologically, they're not technically exciting. You might find artifacts. But it's a low density of artifacts compared to other types of sites. They disappear easily. Some areas where you can still see kind of faint traces of the Fort King Road. And Michelle Savilich and I confirmed that during our road tour along the trip. Most of it's disappeared, but there are a few examples. Be near the Fort King Road. What did you do with the overall campaigns? Really didn't do a whole lot of flying specific campaigns as far as the civic use of the road or movement offer on the road. That's something that we're getting into now. Chukachati, we're studying at least a portion of road that would have included uh, at least three seminal villages going from where Fort Foster is to modern day Brooksville. We can apply aspects of the study to that now. At the time, we really didn't do a whole lot of that. We were just kind of mostly working with the numbers and the post returns and seeing what could we query off of that. It'll be into current and future studies to find more applications for that. With the Dade battle site, how much has Gary done for an archaeological survey? We didn't do anything specifically to examine Dade's battle in a lot of great depth beyond mostly what people have. Uh, what have you looked for? We looked at a few other areas and evaluated other locations, such as the battle of Sinodasasa, another key area of Jeff's interest at the moment right now. We evaluated whether or not some work could be done 
and maybe whether or not some work should be done in portions of it. There's some stretches that are still owned by State Park where you probably do some selective coring and stuff like that if you really wanted to. But physical archaeology of roads is challenging and often, at least as far as a cultural material perspective, not as rewarding. Why did you start with just a pilot study? We wanted to do a pilot study to test to see if this was useful information, and we did some test queries. One of them was, do you see the decline in troops at forts during the summer sickly season? To some degree, but Fort Brook rarely empties. You know, there are a lot of questions we can ask of it. And a lot more refining because if troops aren't in the forts, well, where are they? So you might end up with patterns of empty forts versus certain types of campaigns or movement throughout Florida. These are things that you can query. It's just like any queryable database or, or even spreadsheets. You can make it queryable. It's a great way of tracking numbers that you normally don't see. Did you do a deep archaeological dig? Not for this one. This one was largely a historic project, a pilot study to test out what you could learn from evaluating post returns with key features like this. The second portion of the project was to do a cocoa analysis of the Second War, like sort of in the general fields of fire, avenues of approach, cover and concealment, obstacles, so on. A lot of those are pretty basic avenues of approach. That would have been the road, and then Seminole would have had their countering as what we've already discussed of how they use the road or how they view the U.S. military is using the road. A general cocoa for the road, not really specific engagements like we tend to do for other battles. We've discussed it before, but please reiterate. Sean, what is cocoa analysis? Cocoa analysis is military terrain analysis. You're looking at key terrain, obstacles, cover and concealment, fields of fire, avenues of approach and egress. And observation points is one of the O's in there. Looking at just the way different aspects of the landscape would have been used during battles itself, as well as campaigns. And you have to apply it to both sides. And since the seminal use of landscape is so vastly different from the U.S. military landscape, you do have to create two cocoas. How did this cocoa analysis go? This one, like a fairly simple one in the sense that it was coverall. It wasn't like Wahoo Swamp where we're specifically highlighting, okay, this slew, this slew, and this slew would have been key terrain points, and this would have been the avenues of approach and egress. Instead, you're applying that in a general sense to the road. Your avenues of egress and advancement for the U.S. military would be the road itself, whereas avenues of advancement and egress for the Seminole might have been the trails that run perpendicular to the road. Which of Gary's projects best represents the Kakoa model? When I make general references to Kakoa of just the Cove of the Whitlacoochee, when I'm not referring to a specific battle, this report has the best general basic coverall of what Kakoa meant during the Cove of the Whitlacoochee theater of the war. What was the third aspect of your survey? And then the third portion was a driving tour of the road. So what we did is we traveled along most of the accessible portions of the road. It largely parallels US 301, although not always. We made a series of stops and we used of Jerry and Jeff's book as a reference point for that. We made little stops, see the condition and evaluate any potential work that could be done on the road. How has the landscape changed since 1820s, 1830s, 1840s? One of basically say how it's changed today. The Fort King Road, it's definitely drier, probably more well drained than it would have been heavily developed because you've got little towns like Zephyr Hills, Dade City, Bushnell that all run along it. So you've got your usual strip malls, constructions of modern roads, like I said, 301, which largely covers portions of it. 
and the construction of retention ponds that go with modern road construction and modern development. You're looking at a more drained landscape, obviously significantly devegetated, except for some stretches of the Hillsborough River State Park, sections of the battlefield. You lose what would have been surrounding. You lose that loneliness that would have been on the road before, that we have perceived wilderness on both sides of you. It's gone now that everything's been clear-cut. It would have felt like a tunnel. Trees on both sides of you, even if it was relatively open in some parts of the barrens, you definitely lose that on today's road. You would never know if it was for the occasional road named Fort King Road or Fort King Street or something like that. The fact that any of the road still stands, it's at least appreciable. It's disappointing the limited stands of it, but again, there's very limited things that you can do with a road proper. If parts of it weren't preserved on park property, I assume that it will be gone in the future. Some of the areas that are still preserved that Jeff and Jerry highlight in their book, it literally is the right of way. If Deer Teach so chooses or the local municipality so choose, it's quite possible that further expansions of the road will cause more of it to get covered up. We're going to be left with little segments in state-owned property soon. Unfortunately, large portions of it have been impacted. The construction along 301, a lot of development in the area has eradicated large portions of the road. The turnpike that goes from Orlando to Wild Wildwood has done a lot of damage. One of the ones we noticed down there was the expansion of the villages. The newest villages called Finney, south of the Turnpike, covered a massive expanse of the road. Roads get ignored. To my knowledge, no archaeology was actually done in part of that. Even though a lot of times military trails do require at least some cursory metal detecting or something. I've worked on some of uh, Zachary Taylor's more obscure trails in South Florida that there was almost no chance of finding the road, yet we still had to do archaeological work. So it is interesting, and I would like to see what the outcome is if they made any attempt to rectify that for development of these projects. We used a computer program to help you visualize what the data represents. It was just visualizing fairly basic descriptive statistics. It's not an overly complicated model or anything like that. It's just plot the numbers by time periods and then ask questions or query it based on any sort of interest in time periods or specific locations. A lot of data, a lot of data points. How did you plot that so it would be useful? As part of the project, what we did is we did an Esri story map. We a lot of times have a, what's called a geographic information systems or GIS component with these sites. It may just be something as small as plotting artifacts, and it might just be plotting artifacts on individual sites rather than across large regions or something like that. Since this one here didn't have something like that, what we did is we wanted to create an open access way of viewing the landscape and showing these numbers. Esri is the company that makes the primary GIS software called ArcView or ArcMap. This is an open access free one. We were able to create essentially a geographic narrative and people are allowed to just go to the link and follow it through. It's a series of interpretive signs and, and through a month by month scale of the war, we reflect the numbers that would have been at each of the forts during that time based on the post returns. And then on the Esri story map, I note features like the Fort King Road, forts in the area, battles in the area, and then click month by month throughout the war and see how things changed around the Fort King Road. What did the results of the survey tell you? What we learned was a lot more about the support staff, a lot more about the movement. What stood out to you in your survey? Trace archaeological features. They just lack the, the depth of forts and battlefields, so they get overlooked. But it's just as important as anything else. Gary changed the way it writes its reports for archaeological survey and excavation. A lot of these reports were done back in, in different times, we'll say. The way Gary used to do reports was he would have everything as individual files 
you print it all out and then you manually assemble it. We still do our own binding of physical copies of report, but that's usually one physical copy sitting around the lab and then physical copies get sent out to whatever agencies require them and then everything else we rely on digital. The problem is a lot of the old reports that I have, I'm given a file that might have 300 files on it. Some are just a Word document and then all the figures are separate in separate PDFs. There's not always fully compiled digital copies of all these reports. And then there are ones of like Fort Dade. What it is, is when he did the Fort Dade project, he had to use free PDFs at the time. It puts its own little watermark on the bottom and stuff like that of like fireball PDF. So what I'm doing is nowadays we've got Adobe Acrobat, all the bells and whistles and all that. I'm going through old reports and I'm kind of a perfectionist when it comes to editing at times. So I'm actually going through and correcting things that Gary wrote in 1996 and I'm removing some of these watermarks. How many projects in general is Gary juggling at the same time? At any given time, uh, five projects out. So that would be 10 years. We note, okay, well, what forts can we do in the future? What forts would we like to do? It's a horrifyingly high number of them. Fort Drain, you might be able to do work at Fort Drain, but Fort Drain's under a mine, or at least parts of it. I would take a big shovel. Sean, while you're looking at the terrain, the terrain examination itself is not enough to have a full picture. You then have to use other ways of looking at that. One of the things that we did is we looked at poster turn to movement of people. And what else do you have to consider? You have to consider the full range of archaeological sites that contributed to war. This might include supply depots, manufacturing locations, you name anything that goes to the war effort. Roads are a valuable part of that. It's just they're hard to study so they don't get a lot of attention. They get creative on how you're going to study them. How key were those post-returns to this project? This project, we pretty much focused on post-returns as our primary source document. We include backgrounds on the various campaigns that took place on the Fort King Road, and that would have used additional supporting documents. But overall, this one really focused on that. Michelle designed it to be a pilot study, and she expanded on it a little bit when she gave a presentation for the Fields of Conflict conference in 2018. The idea was that this is kind of showing what these type of documents can be used for. We were kind of hoping to expand on it in the future. If Michelle doesn't continue on, then somebody else will utilize this and use aspects of it either for looking into other things in other subjects and other forts, or we can start compiling this with diaries and other firsthand accounts and on it. But well, this is a limited test study. Sounds like it was smooth because you know what you're doing, but still, you must have had some problems. Initially, some of the problems that we had were just dealing with the post returns itself. Uh, first was finding post returns. Found them in different places. They're available through Library of Congress, but not all have necessarily been digitized. Frank Romer had a bunch, but his weren't digital. His were copied. We would find segments of these reports and from different forts in different places. One was just acquiring them, but that's the general difficulties of historical research and archival work. So we've been everywhere from Library of Congress to Ancestry.com. That was one challenge. One issue is definitely the handwriting on stuff. It was figuring out sometimes what unit could have conceivably been there. So if you get letters of companies that look very similar, then you kind of have to figure out where was which company. Maintaining accuracy in the transcription from the original post return into our spreadsheet was complicated. And then the sheer volume of data. We did 
82 months or maybe 82 returns. We used post returns even before the war for Fort Brooke. So post returns from the 1820s through the 1840s. It was a lot of data. Other issues are when we made this massive spreadsheet that the post return forms change over time. For example, for most of it, they have to write in assistant quartermaster as a position in one of the blank areas because it wasn't listed. It wasn't a printed role. And then later on, what happens is they start including that, but you see other written in roles such as commissary or paymaster. And again, sometimes it's kind of interesting defining what the different roles were. Another one was we saw positions, artificers, blacksmiths, and farriers, who would have done very similar jobs, but you see different connections with different types of units. For example, infantry don't ever travel, usually with any of them, but definitely not with farriers, even though they would have had some use for horseshoes. Dragoons are the only ones who routinely travel with that. Them, whereas our, with, with farriers, whereas artillery units would have been more likely to have artificers, even if they didn't have a cannon with See, that role change. Part of it was artificers, not really a term we use, it's not a role in the modern U.S. military. Sometimes it's figuring out what the difference between specific roles were and why that person was there. Today, the term is tooth-to-tail ratio. How many soldiers to how many support people? Back in the day, they were just called non-combatants, and they assisted. And there were quite a few of them. One thing that people forget is the number of non-combatants, the other people involved in the war. You can be in the military, but not necessarily be holding a musket. We also showed tons of other support staff, such as musicians. You get to see the frequency of drummers versus fight search for key people. As far as like the farriers and the artificers, and that's coming in handy in some of our current projects. In trying to determine the number of troops who might have been marching on the Fort King Road at any one time, one may be tempted to look at what the authorized number of soldiers were and just use that number, but that would be incorrect. Why? Companies were never outfitted to the maximum number of personnel. They were always shorthanded. And one of the interesting things that we learned in it was hear a lot about officer turnover, right? Do we know that like commanding officers rotated almost once a year? And then you've got people like Clinch bows out and eventually resigns. William Foster requires to be transferred after a year or two. And especially the higher up the officer, the more likely you are to get your wishes. So what was astounding was the simple quantity of especially officers who were absent, furloughed at any given time. What was the significance of that? It meant that sergeants end up, well, just like today, I guess, sergeants are still the operating force behind small army units. Due to the lack of officers and such, you see people having to go into additional roles. I saw units where they probably needed a captain, but sergeant might have been the highest ranking guy they had. It translates into a lot of other roles. Regularly see surgeons listed, but a lot of times it might just be an assistant surgeon assistant surgeon was probably assuming advanced roles. And I think the same thing probably would have applied to everybody. You've got the two engineering corps in the military at this time, but if you didn't have topographic engineers with you or something like that, you then might have used, well, who's your West Pointer on staff? Even if they didn't make the grade to go into the engineering department, they at least have some training. People like Prince, Lieutenant Henry Prince, who ends up overseeing that is just because He's very capable at a lot of these things. The thing would apply to everything is that your carpenter might have come down to anywhere from whichever soldier had the most carpentry experience, who was the most handyman of your artificers or such, or it might have just been whichever poor bastard was around that day and got placed in charge of that duty. Okay, a lot of data, a lot of information. What did you do with it? What we did is when you apply that to multiple forts, we could start graphing movement. We applied
applied some test questions like during the summer season, there tends to be this thought of abandoning Florida, abandoning the war. One thing that we notice is while that's definitely apparent in 1836, it's less apparent later on. And in fact, 1837, after the failed capitulation at Fort Brooke, Jessup actually ramps up activity. So you see a lot more troops, but you can also see abandonments of forts and stuff like that because some of these forts might only know when they were constructed within, say, a two-month span or when they were destroyed within a two-month span. Post returns have a potential to narrow some of those windows sometimes. The main thing is you get to see how troops move through the landscape. You can apply that with time periods and then activities in the region. You can see movements of troops for the various campaigns. You can figure out if there's sudden movement of troops to this fort, say Fort King, then that kind of suggests that there's some sort of activity. Then you can go to the historical document and confirm that, or you can go the other way around. You can go through the historical documents about a certain battle or certain activity, and then you can look at the post returns and see if how the forts are being used in conjunction with that activity. What can a consolidated list of post returns from various forts and camps tell you about operations? The data can be used for a variety of other stuff. Now that I'm doing more side research into military arms, specifically seminal arms, but arms during the war, there might be usable data, or I might be able to combine stuff between Camp Izzard and Fort King. What did Gary conclude from its examination? We concluded that the post returns were a valuable set of untapped data. Usually when people go into historical documents like this, a lot of times they're looking for individuals. Seminole Wars Foundation has interest in individuals involved in like Dade's battle. This steps back from that a little bit because there are names occasionally mentioned, but for the most part, these are just numbers and units. It's not as personal as the individual, but it's not overall as much of a strategic view as you might have when you're reading, say, the correspondence between the Secretary of War and commanding officers through military reports. It gives you an intermediary view looking at the conflict. It's just an untapped resource. Somewhat hand-in-hand in this analysis is a report on baggage train use. What was the purpose for that? Fort King Road Battlefield and Baggage Project consisted of three components. That one was run by Michelle Savilich, Sarah Porch Lee, Jonathan Dean, and myself worked on that project with her. The main component was analysis of historical documents as a proxy for use of the road. For that, we used post returns from Fort. Specifically, we used post returns from mostly Fort Brook and Fort King, since they were Fort Brook was occupied the entire duration of the Second War. Fort King was occupied for most of the duration of the war, and then Fort Day a fair bit of it. So that was the first one modeling how troops were moved, and then the different types of troops, and then other issues of like furlough, absence, absentia, sickness, and all that that were also noted in the post returns. What's left for modern researchers? There's always more primary documents to be found. One thing would be expanding a post return because there are post returns that we are missing. So seeing if we could fill some of those in, because I think the, the very first post returns from the 1820s are completely handwritten. I don't think it was a printed form at all. If we could expand on that, we could expand off the road. You can look at larger landscapes. For example, if we were to start mapping post returns on the Atlantic coast, you might be able to compare minor campaigns going on over there with campaigns going along the Fort King Road. If we can find post returns for Fort Armstrong, Fort McClure, that would be handy. If you can incorporate other primary source documents, diaries, journals, field reports, then you can use that for corroboration in either direction. What you do is now you tie the other historical documents to the post returns and you build a greater narrative. What post returns do you have that you were able to use in your survey? 
We have all the ones from Fort Dade. It was just Fort Dade's occupied for a shorter span of time than the others. Sean, while you're looking at the terrain, the terrain examination itself is not enough to have a full picture. You then have to use other ways of looking at that. One of the things that we did is we looked at poster turn to movement of people. And what else do you have to consider? You have to consider the full range of archaeological sites that contributed to war. This might include supply depots, manufacturing locations, you name anything that goes to the war effort. Roads are a valuable part of that. It's just they're hard to study so they don't get a lot of attention. So you get creative on how you're going to study them. How key were those post-returns to this project? This project, we pretty much focused on post-returns as our primary source document. We include backgrounds on the various campaigns that took place on the Fort King Road, and that would have used additional supporting documents. But overall, this one really focused on that. Michelle designed it to be a pilot study, and she expanded on it a little bit when she gave a presentation for the Fields of Conflict conference in 2018. The idea was that this is kind of showing what these type of documents can be used for. So we were kind of hoping to expand on it in the future. If Michelle doesn't continue on, then at least somebody else will utilize this and use aspects of it either for looking into other things in other subjects and other forts, or we can start compiling this with diaries and other firsthand accounts and on it. But all this is a limited test study. Sounds like it was smooth because you know what you're doing, but still, you must have had some problems. Initially, some of the problems that we had were just dealing with the post returns itself. Uh, first was finding post returns. We found them in different places. They're available through Library of Congress, but not all have necessarily been digitized. Frank Romer had a bunch, but his weren't digital. His were copied. We'd find segments of these reports and from different forts in different places. One was just acquiring them, but that's the general difficulties of historical research and archival work. So we've been everywhere from Library of Congress to Ancestry.com. That was one challenge. One issue is definitely the handwriting on stuff. It was figuring out sometimes what unit could have conceivably been there. So if you get letters of companies that look very similar, then you kind of have to figure out where was which company. Maintaining accuracy in the transcription from the original post return into our spreadsheet was complicated. And then the sheer volume of data. We did 82 months or maybe 82 returns. We used post returns even before the war for Fort Brook. So post returns from the 1820s to the 1840s. It was a lot of data. Other issues are when we made this massive spreadsheet that the post return forms change over time. For example, for most of it, they have to write in assistant quartermaster as a position in one of the blank areas because it wasn't listed. It wasn't a printed role. And then later on, what happens is they start including that, but you see other written in roles such as commissary or paymaster. And again, sometimes it's kind of interesting defining what the different roles were. Another one was we saw positions, artificers, blacksmiths, and farriers, who would have done very similar jobs, but you see different connections with different types of units. For example, infantry don't ever travel, usually with any of them, but definitely not with farriers, even though they would have had some use for horseshoe. Dragoons are the only ones who routinely travel with that. Them, whereas with, with farriers, whereas artillery units would have been more likely to have artificers, even if they didn't have a cannon with See, that role change. Part of it was artificers, not really a term we use. It's not a role in the modern U.S. military. Sometimes it's figuring out what the difference between specific roles were and why that person was there. Today, the term is tooth-to-tail ratio. How many soldiers to how many support people? Back in the day, they were just called non-combatants, and they assisted. And there were quite a few of them. One thing that people forget is the number of non-combatants. 
the other people involved in the war. You can be in the military, but not necessarily be holding a musket. We also showed tons of other support staff, such as musicians. And you get to see the frequency of drummers versus fife search for key people. As far as like the farriers and the artificers, and that's coming in handy in some of our current projects. In trying to determine the number of troops who might have been marching on the Fort King Road at any one time, one may be tempted to look at what the authorized number of soldiers were and just use that number, but that would be incorrect. Why? Companies were never outfitted to the maximum number of personnel. They were always shorthanded. And one of the interesting things that we learned in it was you hear a lot about officer turnover, right? So we know that like commanding officers rotated almost once a year. And then you've got people like Clinch bows out and eventually resigns. William Foster requires to be transferred after a year or two. And especially the higher up the officer, the more likely you are to get your wishes. So what was astounding was the simple quantity of especially officers who were absent, furloughed at any given time. What was the significance of that? It meant that sergeants end up, well, just like today, I guess, sergeants are still the operating force behind small army units. Due to the lack of officers and such, you see people having to go into additional roles. I saw units where they broadly needed a captain, but sergeant might have been the highest ranking guy they had. It translates into a lot of other roles. Regularly see surgeons listed, but a lot of times it might just be an assistant surgeon. Assistant surgeon was probably assuming advanced roles. And I think the same thing probably would have applied to everybody. You've got the two engineering corps in the military at this time, but if you didn't have topographic engineers with you or something like that, you then might have used, well, who's your West Pointer on staff? Even if they didn't make the grade to go into the engineering department, they at least have some training. People like Prince, Lieutenant Henry Prince, who ends up overseeing that is just because he's very capable at a lot of these things. The thing would apply to everything is that your carpenter might have come down to anywhere from whichever soldier had the most carpentry experience, who was the most handyman of your artificers or such, or it might have just been whichever poor bastard was around that day and got placed in charge of that duty. Okay, a lot of data, a lot of information. What did you do with it? What we did is when you apply that to multiple forts, we could start graphing movement. We applied some test questions like during the summer season, there tends to be the thought of abandoning Florida, abandoning the war. One thing that we notice is while that's definitely apparent in 1836, it's less apparent later on. And in fact, 1837, after the failed capitulation at Fort Brook, Jessup actually ramps up activity. So you see a lot more troops. But you can also see abandonments of forts and stuff like that because some of these forts might only know when they were constructed within, say, a two-month span or when they were destroyed within a two-month span. Post returns have a potential to narrow some of those windows sometimes. The main thing is you get to see how troops move through the landscape. You can apply that with time periods and then activities in the region. You can see movements of troops for the various campaigns. You can figure out if there's sudden movement of troops to this fort, say Fort King, then that kind of suggests that there's some sort of activity. Then you can go to the historical document and confirm that, or you can go the other way around. You can go through the historical documents about a certain battle or certain activity, and then you can look at the post returns and see if how the forts are being used in conjunction with that activity. What can a consolidated list of post returns from various forts and camps tell you about operations? The data can be used for a variety of other stuff. Now that I'm doing more side research into military arms, specifically seminal arms, but arms during the war, there might be usable data, or I might be able to combine stuff between Camp Izzard and Fort King. What did Gary conclude from its examination? 
we concluded that the post returns were a valuable set of untapped data. Usually when people go into historical documents like this, a lot of times they're looking for individuals. The Seminole Wars Foundation has interest in individuals involved in like Dade's battle. This steps back from that a little bit because there are names occasionally mentioned, but for the most part, these are just numbers and units. It's not as personal as the individual but it's not overall as much of a strategic view as you might have when you're reading, say, the correspondence between the Secretary of War and commanding officers through military reports. It gives you an intermediary view looking at the conflict. It's just an untapped resource. Sean Norman, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. It's always a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.